this week. It has taken me over a decade, I would say, to actually try to understand and make sense of the faith worldview that I was raised in. And so the, the best way that I've been able to, to articulate that is that I, I grew up in a cult. After growing up in his mother's radical faith tradition, Dave Fodiatis left home on a mission to uncover the truth about life, faith, and how the universe worked. But as he began building new relationships and exploring faith on his own, he realized absolute truth may not exist at all. Dave and I talk about his experience living a dual life within the faith of his family and out in the everyday world. He reflects on his process of coming to terms with his past and finding comfort in life's unanswered questions. And he talks about the healing power of nature and how it's played a vital role in his own healing journey. He also happens to be my husband. Because how do you move forward when you're still recovering from your past? You find a little faith. I'm Marin Smith, and this is Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek people in Hamilton, Ontario. And Dave Fodiatis also lives on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek territory in Hamilton, Ontario. What is giving you hope right now? Is there a story from your life right now that connected you with your sense of faith or hope? For me, right now, I I build hope or I see hope in actually a lot of stories and individual people's experiences, really in everyday life, but also around the news, where they speak to human potential. And I, I find that what gives me hope in the world right now above anything else that we kind of look at as you know, currently in the news, it's very difficult sometimes to feel hopeful, is I, the expressions of human resilience and capacity that I think is actually just growing and growing and growing in the world. And I think as a collective society, we have not even come close to tapping into what most people in the world's true potential actually is. And as we're growing a sense of how to cultivate human potential that gives me enormous hope for our collective ability to overcome so much of what we see as threats to the world that we live in. Yeah. Do you have an example of something recently that sparked that sense in you? Um, I'm trying to think of a good tangible example of of that because I feel like I, I see that in in a lot of a lot of stories but um, the rebuilding and regrowth that this is an older example but even how 
certain areas like New Orleans have managed to very slowly and very difficultly rebuild themselves back into communities after going through disaster. Mm. And I see that through the aftermath of so many places that have been hit by kind of disasters and the resilience of the people there to want to rebuild and to continue. And, and I see also that in just much smaller everyday senses of individuals in my life in, in my own family, even yourself, who are overcoming their own challenges on a very individual basis mm-hmm. and gives me a sense of hope that at an individual level, people have the capacity to change and to grow and to be resilient and to overcome things that perhaps a few weeks, years, or even days prior to that felt too difficult to do. Mm. Um, and I have seen that both from close people in my life and then also extrapolate that to kind of broader things that you, you see in the news and, and, and kind of read. And I see that those achievements that people are able to do really give that sense of we are resilient and we are powerful and that we are able to do so much more than we ever give ourselves credit for. Yeah. So is this story of resiliency something that you connect with personally? Is that also a part of your story? Oh, absolutely. Without, without any, any question. I think the whole idea of faith and hope and resiliency is very deeply interwoven with my own experience and how I've come to understand myself in the world, but also how I see faith. Um, it has taken me over a decade, I would say, you know, as I've kind of become involved to actually try to understand and make sense of the faith worldview that I was raised in. And so the, the best way that I've been able to to articulate that is that I, I grew up in a cult. And it feels very strange to say that because I didn't feel that way growing up. Mm-hmm. And I think often when I say I grew up in a cult, people may have a view of very extreme, particularly in the U.S., Christian-oriented mm. traditions that kind of live in isolation and everybody is a part of this kind of one group that is incredibly radicalized and extreme, and you don't even have a perception of the outside world outside of that kind of community that you're a part of, mm-hmm. which was absolutely not my experience. I, I grew up in a you know, well-off, upper-middle-class suburb, and the cult was largely my mother's view of the world that was connected to a larger, kind of small, global organization called the Academy for Future Science. And this kind of spiritual underpinnings to her, her faith were, were rooted in, I think, Christ, definitely rooted in Christianity, but expanded to touch on bits and pieces of faith traditions from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And this was not something that I lived outside of what my mother and that small community created. So it was not a part of my everyday life in school or with my friends or, um, you know, not even always with every member of my family. And if I try to distill, well, what was that, the essence of that belief system? It boiled down to essentially something that, to me, how I interpreted this, was quite Dante-esque almost, in that we are, as humanity, in a constant battle for the salvation of our souls, And 
we as individual humans have the potential to take what Jesus did and rise from the dead in a very direct, literal sense of what we can do as humans on earth today, which is become God. So the worldview that was constructed for me was this battle of archangel and devil-like beings that we as humanity were caught in the middle of this cosmic fight for the future of your soul, essentially. And the way to escape that was to become a Christ-like, God-like being on earth with as a child, hearing this, all of the associated powers, uh, like the miracle working that Jesus in the Bible was able to present, which meant I could do things like, you know, move things by waving my hand or heal people by my touch or, um, you know, create food out of a desert or, you know, turn water into wine in a very literal sense in the world that we live in today. So that, that worldview that was kind of put on me from a pretty early age was not something that I ever shared to anybody outside of that small kind of group that was not even particularly localized because it felt to me completely at odds with the lived experience in the world around me. But as a child, didn't really have a way of integrating any of that. So it, it, it grew, I grew up in a way of feeling that faith and spirituality was through the lens of my mother was something to almost kind of keep siloed from the rest of my life. Yeah. So what I am hearing is that you kind of had a dual existence in some ways. Yes. very. You much. had your existence at home within the structure that this faith laid out for you and then you had your life outside of that when you went to school or you interacted with friends that was very different than that you described a little bit of it but how did those two overlap and interact because it's impossible for them to actually stay separate so what were you taught in your faith community about the world that you were interacting with and living in and how was that, or what was that experience like for you? Well, the experience was very confusing for me, for sure, uh, as, as a child and, and a younger person. I, I would say that one of the things that we were, that I was taught in that community, so it was, it was a little bit more complicated than how I just described it as sort of that archetype battle for your soul, although that certainly is something that I, I took from that. Uh, but the, the idea of the, the, tradition, let's say, that that I was exposed to, was also gravitated toward science and almost pseudoscience in some ways as the path toward what we were able to do, that we were actually, as humans, able of achieving through scientific discovery all of the tools that made what seemed to be an impossible mystical existence real that it was all rooted in actual science that we as humanity have just not yet discovered. Mm-hmm. So it taught me kind of two, two big things. One was, ironically, a very strong belief in science, that science was the path and the answer, and that sh- if we were able to understand 
that science and spirituality were not separate, we would have a much higher capacity for achieving that godlike state that that we wanted. So it gave me a very strong belief in the pursuit of science. The other thing that it gave me a very strong sense of was I was taught to largely disregard, not, not, not fully disregard, but significantly question the world that we saw. Mm. Because so much of the faith existence from that path existed in something that you could not see. Mm. You could not observe. And then, you know, they and formulating every all of their beliefs kind of tying into this would would find examples of oh this this world event reinforces reinforces this belief because this miracle was reported to happen somewhere but what it largely meant was don't trust what you see in the world mm. because that's only part of the story and that that was from everything from don't trust everything that you're taught in school don't trust people don't, um, and it wasn't don't trust so much as know that there's more to the truth than what you are being presented. So be very skeptical of what any kind of authority figure says, be very skeptical to what, um, you know, government school institutions, um, and that we, as our faith tradition had the actual truth mm. to unlock the mysteries of the world, that all of these other kind of faiths and religions had bits and pieces of that, but ours was the truth. And, and, and so I think f that confused me for sure, because looking around the world, I'm like, well, you know, nothing that you're telling me I see anywhere reflected <laughs> in my lived experience. Um, but also, you know, kind of later on, it, it actually set me up for a very strong desire to pursue what I perceived as truth. And, and I set out throughout school and throughout much of my time in university was I didn't want to just take what people said on face value. I wanted to know why anyone, whether it was a government decision or a company or an institution, did what they did hmm. and understand from all sides as I could what you knew or thought you knew to inform a decision. And that kind of pursuit to truth led me through a lot of what I actually studied in, in school and, and in some ways what I, what I do now mm -hmm. uh, to try to understand that. Let's talk a bit more about this concept of truth because you said that the faith community that you were raised in believed that they had a claim on the truth. Mm -hmm. Did it feel true to you or did you believe that truth or what was your relationship with being faithful to the tradition that you were being taught? So the short answer is no, I, I didn't believe that that was truth. Um, this, this idea of truth and what is truth, I struggled with as a child and continued through that for a very, very long time because I didn't believe the truth that was being presented to me. Mm -hmm. But I also couldn't entirely let that go. And and I wrestled with this in part for a fear, well, what if I was wrong? That I, I didn't believe what I was being told around the world or this fight for our souls, as I have said, um, or that 
truth resided with one group over another. You know, what made this particular teaching more, you know, have a, have a better right to a claim than, you know, longstanding religious traditions that have, or faith traditions that have been in existence for hundreds and thousands of years. At the same time as a child, you don't really think like this. Mm-hmm. You just kind of think like, is this the world? <laughs> is this, is this not? Like, how do I make sense of that? And so I didn't believe it, but I couldn't let it go either. Mm-hmm. And what I, I wanted to, so this is a, I wanted to read this passage because it spoke to how I wrestled with this as an early adult throughout my twenties and, and kind of sort of, and it's, it's from uh, the brothers Karamazov from Dostoevsky. And it was a book that I read, I think I was 20 or 21. And I was at the time living in uh, Maine and working in a national park. And so I was reading this section of the, uh, of the book is, basically a, a dream that the main character in the book is having with a figment of his imagination, which is the devil. And so it's a it's a very complicated kind of storyline where he's trying to wrestle with faith and insanity, both of which resonated very strongly with me because of my own faith journey and because mental illness and insanity was also a big part of my childhood growing up with members of my family. So as I was reading this, the figment in the imagination of the character's imagination says, from the vehemence of which you deny my existence, I am convinced that you believe in me. And Ivan says, not in the slightest. I haven't a hundredth part of a grain of faith in you, but you have the thousandth of a grain. Homeopathic doses perhaps are the strongest. Confess that you have faith even to the ten thousandths of a grain. And when I read that, it triggered all of these thoughts of my own belief. I, I don't believe in this at all, but I could not get rid of that tiny, tiny bit of doubt that maybe this faith structure was true. Mm-hmm. And if that was the case, what did that mean? Was I wrong? How would I live my life? How could I make sense of the possibility that I might actually be able to follow this path that laid out totally unrealistic expectations of what you can do with yourself in your life um, to was I willing to just disregard everything and say, this isn't something that I believe in at all. And, and just kind of live as if that was not a part of who I was. And, you know, at, at 20, I don't think that I really knew what to do with that. So I kind of didn't do a lot with it, but over the years, what it's come to mean to me I didn't need to believe in the faith structure that was presented to me as a child to understand that that shadow kind of of a doubt was more to the deeper questions of who we are in the world. And Mm -hmm. I was not, did not believe that I could transform myself into a godlike being, but it actually led me to a very strong sense of potential that I have in myself, that Mm -hmm. faith didn't need to look like that to still be real. And what faith meant didn't need to look like what I was presented with to know that there was something more in the world than what just was presented to you. Mm-hmm. A truth didn't have to be just one thing, but it was something that you could always explore further and understand that individual people come to understand truth in a very different way. And that truth for them may feel 100% true. That is not truth to somebody else. Mm 
Hmm. And that all of those things could coexist at the same time. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit and talk more about how you started to move away and grow from the tradition you were raised in. Because one of the or one of the features of a cult is that you are required to perform certain duties. That you are expected to go through certain rituals or do certain jobs. It's an active service that you do to that community that binds you in the faith system more. So I'm curious for you, growing up in this space where you said you also started to have doubt from a young age, where those two things also interacted. What were the duties that you were expected to have And when did those start to not feel honest or connected to your sense of truth? And then beyond that, when did you start to stop involving yourself with that? Well, I think the, the, the idea that is very present in, as as you said, in many cults of what you need to do to continue to be a part of that, a little bit different perhaps in my experience, because there was no real physical community very much. It was largely like what I was supposed to do was what my mother wanted me to do Mm -hmm. as well as what she kind of laid out as what was needed for us to be able to actually follow the path that was being prescribed or, or laid out. And, and in many ways, what that meant was an enormous amount of study to understand all of these ancient texts and all of the, you know, philosophical underpinnings to unlocking how you would go about following what they believed was the path of of Christ. Um, And that, to me, you know, that started with realizing over time that if this is what was required, I had to become an expert in like all world religions from all sorts of different perspectives, usually from a mystical kind of sense, Um, and then also become a scientist that could understand all of the nuances of quantum physics and all of the advances in sonar radar technologies that hadn't even been created. And so there was this, this was probably throughout, throughout high school where I started to realize like, this doesn't make sense because this is one, not something that I'm interested in two not something that I understand three, not something that I really believe is true. But even if I did, I don't know that this is possible. So I started to back away by simply not engaging anymore. And as a, you know, as a teenager, and again, not living up, living in an environment where this was reinforced everywhere, it became a little bit easier and easier for me to just slowly extract myself. Mm -hmm. So that by the time that I, you know, left, uh, left home after high school, this was not an active part of my life in any continuous sense, but it was very much an active part of my life in how I still thought about the world. Mm. It was it was kind of during that period where I was trying I was at a point of realizing that what I had been taught of the world was not true. And, you know, in that time your young, you know, teenager, early 20s, kind of trying to rediscover all the relationships people um just what, how you see yourself in the world, what you want to do. And I felt like I had no idea because I didn't even understand what the world could have been like or, or was like, if that 
makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is con- contrasted to, of course, like my entire existence as a teenager, which was, you know, I went to a public school. I had a lot of friends. I played sports. I was a very good student. And, you know, I, I had a very kind of normal looking adolescence from the outside perspective. And that this is, I did not know how to talk about any of these inner feelings, any ideas around what faith meant or how you put yourself into the world. So I didn't really also know how to create a relationship with any, with anyone that had this as a part of it, including myself. So when I made the comment around, like I left following the traditions probably around that time, but it was still with me because I was trying to figure out what all of that meant Mm -hmm. and how I could actually integrate my full self because for my entire existence, there was a whole part of me that I couldn't share with anybody. And I felt embarrassed to share this with anybody because it it felt like, well, this is crazy because it was, (laughs) but not, not in a way that I was able to actually separate out from me. This felt personal. This felt like because I thought this or I wasn't able to to say, I don't believe this, or I did believe this, or I didn't really know what my belief was at that time, that I was embarrassed to even begin to talk about it with anyone Mm. because of how crazy it, it made me feel. The other sides to that that always kind of made me recognize, strangely, a real value in what I had been exposed to was this enormous breadth of exposure to different types of faith traditions. And that is closed in some ways as her belief system was, it also gave validity to traditions from multiple different cultures, from Hinduism, from a lot from Buddhism, a lot from ancient Taoist cultures, um, and ancient Chinese culture. Like there, there was, I, I didn't, appreciate that at the time. Like, I think this to me all just kind of seemed like part of the same concoction of hand selecting things that you like from all sorts of different traditions and then putting them all together and saying like, here's, here is the path to truth. But what it in hindsight has, has led me to do is is recognize the enormous similarities from many different faith traditions and, and also from the valuable stories and paths that exist from multiple different ways of seeking truth. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's never something that's left me and something that I have really grown to appreciate despite all of the components of my faith that I, you know, was not that were not helpful to me. Yeah. So you talked about this time where you were in your early 20s and you were trying to figure out how to even name for yourself what your experience had been growing up, let alone figuring out how to integrate that into relationships that you were in. What was the journey from then until where you are now? So an I mean, enormous part of that journey has been meeting you and knowing that exploring faith was incredibly important to you and that your own faith journey wasn't linear either. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think it was a recognition that I needed to understand for myself what I believed in and to some degree Mm -hmm. that previously trying to sort through all of that messiness of my youth 
wasn't going to go away. I either had two choices. My choice was to just totally disregard faith entirely, which I couldn't do, or figure out what it meant to me. And the very beginning, I think, was just acknowledging that faith mattered Hmm. because that went against outwardly saying that that faith was actually important because for, for a long time, kind of during those kind of early, you know, late teen, early 20 years, I think I would have struggled to identify myself as someone who believed in any kind of faith. Um, but I knew that that just didn't feel true to who I was. So as we met and started, you know, started dating, but also started to really engage with your faith journey in some ways gave me an opportunity to explore deeper my own. And, you know, that led us to going to a, you know, we started by going to a Mennonite church, you know, and that was something where that redefined for me in many ways that a faith community could actually be supportive and could be something that was more than just people thinking the same way around what does faith mean. It was, a collection of people that were really there to support and be a part of each other. Mm-hmm. And I think we were there for a few years with where we then kind of hit, hit a point in recognizing that while we loved this community in many, many respects, we also just didn't believe the fundamental tenets of, of their faith. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was a problem. And so we couldn't, we couldn't stay in that, but it was the first experience that I had ever had where faith could actually be an empowering and communal experience that was out and discussed and not everyone believed the same exact things, but you were able to sort of be in community together. And and I think kind of alongside of that same time, can't remember the exact timeline, but uh, was when you had started taking your yoga teacher training and really becoming more immersed in the yogic philosophy. And for me, that was a really fascinating thing to learn through you because so much of some of those underpinnings and uh, some of the, the, the Hindu, you know, the Bhagavad Gita and some of the underlying texts um, from Hinduism and, and, and yoga were things that I had been exposed to as a kid through my mom's own faith that I didn't understand and probably disregarded. But it was an interesting way to almost reclaim some of the aspects of things that I intrinsically felt true to me at that, that time in a different lens. Um, and then, and then ultimately it kind of led us to going to the Unitarian church and becoming a part of a community that for the first time ever actually felt like it was a space where all of the messiness and the complexities and the uncertainties around what faith is and meant was encouraged and supported and okay and actually, it was an entire congregation of people that all came from different backgrounds and different experiences and different relations to to faith, including the existence of a deity or, or non-existence of a deity. And, and all of that was okay. And you could have all of that openness while also having a community, an actual community to just be there for each other and supportive of each other. And, and it was... This happened gradually over several years, but it it was really the uh, opportunity for me to recognize that faith didn't have to be one thing all the time, that it could actually emerge, it could grow, it could be, uh, it could evolve. And 
I didn't have to worry so much about naming every single one of those beliefs mm. or truths. I could just explore that and that that was okay. So where do you think you land now after all that journey? Still in the midst of the journey. <laughs> I, I think I think very much. I think still very much in the midst of the journey. Um, yeah, I think that I have come to a place of, if I were to try to lay out like my strong beliefs of firmly believing in powers far greater than human existence alone and a mystery of the universe that we don't understand that I, I don't know that we ever can fully understand, but that also that we don't need to fully understand. And in fact, the not knowing is part of what makes faith so powerful mm-hmm. and it's the definition. Right. <laughs> um, and and that, that, that is intrinsically true to every single part of human existence all across the world and, and probably all throughout, throughout time. That the more and more we learn, the more and more we know that we don't know. Mm. And there is, there, is a, there is a hope and an optimism and I, and I think a resilience to that because there's always that that growth in who we are, what we understand, and that those deep questions around who we are, you know, what is our life for? What are we working, moving toward are really not disconnected from, from faith and that we are not, we're not alone and that we are not, we're not on that, those questions and those paths in, in isolation, even though our shared experiences may not look the same. Yeah. It's a very universalist view I very much embrace um, the idea that truth is not absolute. There are absolutes do not really exist. And in, in any different case, the idea of absolute truth isn't part of the existence of our, of our world or, or how I see the universe. And, and if that means an absolute truth doesn't exist, the idea that there is one overarching total way that everything all makes sense I don't know if that's true. And if that's not true, then there are infinite possibilities of, of what is true, of how we understand the world. Yeah. So... How did your experiences growing up and your experiences with faith and hope lead you to the work that you do today? So I really, I think that started for me when I came back to university and I went to the University of Toronto. So what happened is a short context. I, after I left um, home as after high school, I traveled around and worked in seasonal jobs for a few years across the U.S. And then when I was looking back to go back to school, I went into uh, the University of Toronto, moved to to Toronto, and I had an incredibly broad academic interest. And, and I think that reflected a lot of just my personality, but also 
what my experience growing up was, was incredibly multifaceted and, and interdisciplinary. And even from the, the faith perspective, it was incredibly multifaceted. And so I, I started, um, you know, I studied a pretty wide range of, of topics. I studied political science. I studied English. I studied uh, religion, um, environmental science and, and earth sciences, because I also had a, a very strong connection to the outdoors from the time I was a very small child. And, and so somewhere around my second, second year, I think in, in Toronto, I, I took a class on climate change, which I had known about for years growing up. But that was the first time that I was really exposed to the issue of climate change from a variety of different perspectives. And what it really did transform my academic pursuits and now my professional pursuits directly. And it was because the more I learned about it, the more climate change is, it's a capstone. It's not even an issue. It is, it is something that fundamentally touches every single aspect of life. And so it's a societal challenge that also allows individuals to come at it from every different possible perspective. So you can come at it from a scientific perspective. You can come at it from a political perspective, a business perspective, and an economic perspective. It's also a spiritual question. You can come at it from you can come at it from the arts. Like you can come at it from almost any vantage point that you have and experience to say how do we make sense of this time that we're on the planet today and what you may or you know may want to do about that in your own life as well as we as kind of a society. So so for me it was something that just allowed my intellectual curiosity and breadth of subjects that I was interested in converge while also feeding to something that was a lot deeper because I could explore those kind of questions on my own and it, it wasn't disconnected, you know, in a way it was actually integrated in almost everything if I chose it to be. Yeah. I also know that nature and being outdoors and outdoor sports were all very important to you as well. I, you worked on a wildlife refuge, you taught skiing in the mountains. Did that play a role as well in you choosing to study the environment or even take that first step in taking that class, as you said? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that, that, that goes back even further, like ever since I was a child, where in many ways, it's actually a really good part of what brought me into the, the climate change work, because for many years as, as a kid and teenage years, I thought that I might want to pursue something in a more traditional environmental science type program. Like I studied environmental science. Um, I took classes that allowed me to go do field work. And part of that was being able to be in the outside and then getting that exposure or learning from an early age how important time in nature was to me and how immeasurably beneficial that was for who I became was also something that I just, you know, I knew that's something that needs to be preserved and needs to be shared with as many people as, as possible. And it's kind of more of a traditional environmentalist draw, whereas there's power in being in nature. So I had that from the beginning. What I think I found as I went through school was intellectually, I didn't see my life in that field. I didn't see myself as a researcher. I didn't see myself as someone who would spend their advocate, you know, their profession doing all of those things that I would like to do on my own personal time, even though I wanted the two to be 
tied together. And so I had broad interests in politics and English and, and just other subjects. And studying climate change seemed to bring some of that together, where it was very deeply connected to that outdoor environmentalist rooting that really brought me into this. But it also allowed me to use so many other of the interests that I had uh, beyond just kind of the, the scientific perspective. You mentioned that you found from a very young age that being in nature had a profound effect on you. Can you describe more about what that was? I think it always was, it was where I felt most comfortable. It, it was where I felt calmest. It was where I felt most at peace. And it was also where for much of my, my childhood, going camping, going, being outside, going skiing, um, going for hikes, canoeing, was also what I, I had some of the fondest memories of doing that. It was the most enjoyable times in many cases that, that I had. And it was the space where you could really, you know, you could be a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as I, you know, wasn't a kid, it was, it was a place where I wanted to share time with other people, with, with friends and, and with family. But it always kind of tied back to that sense of inner calm. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think I would have known that at the time as a child, but it was really this, it was in nature where I could feel refreshed, where I could feel like all of the other, you know, frankly, looking back on it, chaos of, of much of my life dissipated. And it was just held in the natural environment. And so I think it, it, it felt safe in many ways um, that, you know, that I, that I became to appreciate. And then, and then, you know, as I went, became a little bit older and studied, also learned that that wasn't just a feeling, that there's an enormous amount of actual academic research that points to the health benefits, the psychological benefits to being in nature. And that just sort of reinforced what I intrinsically felt that I always knew. So nature is healing to you. Very, yeah, very. And it is still to this day. I mean, this is, that is the place where, you know, always feel when we're overly, you know, if it's a busy time, you're overly stressed and you kind of need a reprieve. It's always to go back into nature. And that is always that, that space of rejuvenation and, and healing. So how do you carry this sense of healing into the work that you do now? in the climate change field? I guess, I guess two ways of thinking about that, that question. The, the one is, I think what brought me into working in climate change in the first place, there is a sense of needed healing for the planet. Like this whole crisis is being caused, you know, we are damaging the planet and the ecosystems by, you know, the way human activity and human economic development has has evolved. So I think there's there's always the sense that anything that we're doing to try to you know, reduce greenhouse gas emissions or help organizations, individuals, governments kind of prepare for what a changing climate actually means, there's a sense of healing within that because we are trying to help fix or heal this this problem that we've caused. Yeah. The other side to it though is is where I am focusing on, you know, professionally that sense of healing is to never lose sight of you know, healing is a very human term, right? Yeah. Like ecosystems we don't talk about as ecosystems healing. Like ecosystems will will change. They will they will adapt for better or worse. And the ecosystem itself will respond. And that may take hundreds and thousands of years or it may take a, a little bit of a shorter time. We we don't always know. But healing is very human. And so 
the idea that you're working on climate change never separates itself. It's not an environmental issue. It's always a human issue and that there is a healing that is needed at the human level mm. across, you know, f- f- for anyone that comes into this thing. So for me, I think it it keeps front and center in any work that I'm doing the very human element of what climate change is and means. This is deeply a human problem and that there is a deep sense of loss and pain that is associated with climate change mm. and that people need to also heal through what is what is happening to the world right now as things have gotten more difficult as we know like every year is the next hottest year on record it's very easy to turn to despair mm-hmm. but in knowing you you actually hold a lot of hope mm-hmm. for the planet for the future and for our ability to work through this crisis so i'm wondering what you actually see hope in and why you feel hopeful that we can address this problem. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I'll start with it. it. It is hard when you're following the, you know, the, the news. And certainly if you're following the science, the science, it does not create a very hopeful or optimistic picture. But I also think that it goes back to one of the ways that climate change, it's a personal issue as much as it's a collective issue. Mm-hmm. And where I, I see hope is in the capacity of individuals to, to change and the capacity of individuals to be resilient and to respond in unexpected ways to circumstances that they are put into that they would never have wished upon or, or wanted and in many cases didn't create. And when we look at our collective ability to make progress on something like the climate crisis, it will only happen when a groundswell of individual people make those significant changes to move in a different direction. And I do see evidence that that is actually happening, that 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 is happening across a number of different aspects of society from active youth engagement and and activism to, to just frankly the fact that climate change registers as a top political issue. Businesses are taking action. We can always argue that they need to do more and they do, but but they're taking actions in ways that wasn't happening 10, even five years uh, ago. And, and I think the reason all of that is happening is, is of course, because the climate crisis is, is it has accelerated, but also because individuals are changing. And it used to be, we can't do this because this problem is too difficult or it's too expensive. And now the attitude is like, well, we have to do this. We are going to do this. Let's figure out how we're going to do this mm-hmm. and let's start. And, and that, that shift to me is actually a personal change. It, it reorients how you think about something to say, we can do this or we're going to try. And, and that is the start that, that we really need to build such a big coalition of, of individuals who are going to, to make a difference. Yeah. So what is your hope for the world in the midst of this crisis? My hope is that through going through this crisis and trying to, as a society, figure out how to respond, that one, we are able to do so in a way that recognizes we are all a part of the same journey, that climate change really affects everybody. And yes, it will affect some people more acutely than others, particularly the poor and those less able to, who have less means to change their own circumstances. 
but that it is something that we can all see ourselves reflected in someone else. And in doing that, that it's actually an opportunity for us to address and build a world and a future that is more inclusive of our differences and more resilient against the unknowable forces that always will come at us throughout our lives. That it's actually, it's an opportunity to make your life better, not just avert something bad from happening. Mm -hmm. As a society, so many of the, quote, solutions to climate change can actually help improve quality of life, can help improve individual circumstances and have a you know cleaner, safer, healthier world that we live in. And, and, and I think that if we as a collective society can see it as that opportunity and not just we need to do this so we don't die, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we can actually create a world that is you know, more prosperous, more just, and, and frankly, more uh, you know, safer than the one that we have today. So I want to put to you the question that I've put to all the people that I have talked to. And it's a question about the definition of faith. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. One, as an allegiance or duty that you have to something. Two, as a belief or trust in something that's greater than yourself. And three, as something that you believe in or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each one of those definitions to you as a question. So for you, Dave, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to? I have always felt a strong allegiance to the natural world and the natural environment, that we are a part of the natural world and a strong sense of say obligation but i think it's all it's more than it's more than that it's a it's a love and a desire to help sustain and protect and preserve not even protect but preserve the the natural world everything we have on this planet is because of the natural world ever mm-hmm. our ability to create everything that is positive I mean, frankly, and negative, but everything that literally everything that we have that we've created in society comes from, comes from the earth. And it comes from our ability to learn from and take, but also, you know, use in a way that we have to preserve and and, and protect. I mean, the very fun foundation and fundamental idea of what sustainability is all about is simply that we need to maintain the earth's capacity so that we can continue to live in it and on it. And so I think from just a very kind of basic scientific perspective, I've always had an allegiance to that. But on a very deep personal level, that's been where I have found my source of strength and and inspiration. Mm -hmm. And so that has always led me to a, a deep connection that this is something that needs to be preserved and protected. And so what do you put faith or trust in that is greater than yourself? 
I've always put faith in this mystery, in this idea that there is so much more to life, to our experience that we have in this world and than we can really know. And as much as we learn and learn and learn and more and more about the world, the more and more is exposed that we don't know. And in that mystery and in that unknowing of greater expanse of the universal truths, always will hold the source for our continued perpetual sustenance and existence. And so I, I don't, it's just, it's a fundamental belief in what we don't know is also what will continually allow us to grow and sustain us and take us even further as, as individuals and as humanity. Yeah. And what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I believe that everybody has something that they believe to be true at their core. I believe that we as individuals have the capacity within us to heal, to overcome, to be resilient, and to thrive through any situation that we are presented with in life. And even where that situation feels as bleak and as dire and may even result in an individual life being lost, that we have within us the capacity and the ability to use that to help the rest of humanity move forward. Every single person's life and story has the capacity to change others. Yeah. And the world. Yeah. So do you have a spiritual practice that you do on a regular basis? It could be daily or weekly or monthly or yearly, but something that you turn to that connects you to your sense of faith or hope. I use this periodically um, as as I need, but I, I use a... A mindfulness-based practice, a very, very simple one that I uh, will often use just just at work throughout the day or, or kind of at any at any point to help bring me back into myself and my body and really into into the earth and kind of connect into to the natural world, even if I'm you know in an office building downtown in a city. So I have a propensity to be in my head quite a bit, to over, overthink things, to overanalyze things, and mm-hmm. you know, and I and I work in a profession where I'm thinking a lot for for work, so it kind of rein, reinforces itself. But as a result of that, I'm often trying to become a little bit more um, aware to break those thought cycles that can sometimes spin out of out of control and, frankly, become less helpful and and, and stressful. So I use this practice to try to get out of that thought pattern and connect back into myself and just feel the presence of the earth, even if I'm nowhere near kind of the, uh, the, the outdoors. So what, what it is, is just a very simple mindfulness-based practice where I try to, what I notice is just, just stop and pause and notice where my thoughts are at that particular moment. And then pause whatever train of thought that I'm on or, 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 or thought pattern just pause it for a moment and then pull into my surroundings and and just really look around and try to spend a few moments visibly taking in people or objects or or moving that that is just in my vicinity, whether that's in my office or or outside on on the street and just 
stop and pause and observe, frankly, the world you are in for a few moments and then take a really deep breath and try to take all of that, those thoughts that were in my head at the moment and then just let them flow with my breath down throughout my body and out into the, to the ground and the floor to cleanse myself of that kind of overthinking uh, that, that sometimes can creep in and then breathe back in a fresh, you know, breath drawing on it, the energy from the earth Mm -hmm. and bring that back all the way up through my body and replace that fresh earth energy. And that makes sense with whatever that, that thought pattern had been Um, and very simple. And then just take a breath out and then come back and, what I often find is that very simple exercise makes me feel refreshed and calmer and also mentally a little bit sharper because I'm often doing that when I know that I'm kind of caught in an unhealthy pattern. And how often do you do it or when do you do it? Um, I don't know how often I do it. You know, sometimes I do it multiple times a day and sometimes it might be a few days in between, but I would, it's definitely something that I'm doing number of times in a given week. Um, I will sometimes do it while I'm at work. It's a good, very simple, just pause in my day to kind of refresh what I'm doing. I also find that I do it late at night quite a bit. Um, sometimes late at night is very hard for me to turn my mind off to go to sleep and get ready, kind of transitioning. My mind will, will have a tendency to spin. So I, I use it I use it sometimes uh, then to help just try to calm to, to calm my mind down a little bit. Those are probably the two main times of, of day that I use it. And how does it make you feel? It usually does make me feel a bit more refreshed. Like I, I feel calmer and I feel a little bit more at, at ease. It's, I'd say that sometimes it simply draws my attention to how I have been feeling which in and of itself can be significant. It just, if I, I notice that to do that, it's, I'm, I'm stressed about this or I'm overthinking about this and I try to do that exercise and you know, this, isn't a, this isn't always going to immediately put me into a better space. Like this, That's not how this works, but it, it does at least bring my attention to say, okay, what's going on? What is it that I'm really worried about? And if I try that a couple of times and it's still not working, then maybe that's a signal that I need to, to do something different and, 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 and I may. But it, at least it makes me more aware of myself. Mm. And that's always that's always good. And it, it also it helps give a sense of agency. Like I'm not just caught in this perpetual cycle that I can't escape of. And I think, oh, I'm overthinking this, I'm overthinking this. Like, well, at least I'm trying to take... Uh, some very small uh, step to to change that pattern. Yeah, it's great. And you can find Dave Fodiatis's spiritual practice, connecting with the earth, in the spiritual practice library at keepingfaithpod.com, where you can listen to him guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith. Our music is by Ron Kelly, and our design is by Barbara Kowalski. If this episode spoke to you, you can subscribe or leave us a review. But more importantly, pass it along to someone you care about. It's one way we can encourage each other to keep faith. Next week, we're gleaning wisdom from generations that have gone before us. 
I'll be talking to singer-songwriter and Unitarian Universalist minister Lynn Harrison about what she's learned throughout her life, about faith, hope, and how our moments of doubt are the ones that show us we're on the right path. So until then, holding you in hope and faith, I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.